0: So it's starting to feel like it's catch up with old friends season here at Turn and Talk Podcast. I got a chance to connect with another old friend of mine, a great friend who I had the privilege of working with for a long time. And I learned a lot from him and I'm really excited to bring him onto the show so that all of us can also hear him and learn from him. We talked a lot about teacher preparation, about what it takes to be an effective teacher in today's classrooms, and the art and science of coaching teachers. Stay tuned, you're going to like this one, and feel free to share your thoughts, ideas, and comments with me at at gmail.com Enjoy. Welcome to the Turn and Talk podcast where educators take the mic back and speak their truth without filter. I interview teachers and school personnel and ask them to share their views and experiences about education anonymously. If you work in a school setting or have worked in one and have something to say about education, please email me at turnandtalkpodcast@gmail.com at gmail.com because I'd love for you to take the mic back and add your voice to the conversation about public education. Subscribe, share, and enjoy the show. Welcome to the new episode, everybody. We have a teacher of history here today with us, who's also an instructional leader. He's been in the game for a long time, and we have the privilege of speaking to him about everything related to education in 2020. So welcome to the show. How are you?
1: Good. How are you?
0: Very good. Thank you for your time. First, let's hear from you about what you do.
1: Yeah, so I am currently a classroom teacher uh, teaching 12th grade AP U.S. government, and I am also an instructional coach. For the last three years, I've had this, uh, not exactly a hybrid role, it's still a full-time teacher role, but I will share that I have uh, a bit of a background in coaching and um, just really enjoy helping to develop teachers. And so I've been the instructional coach for one or two teachers at a time uh, over the last three years. And then with that I'm also part of our school's instructional leadership team so I'm involved in uh, planning and running our like weekly professional development as well.
0: Wow, a lot of responsibilities on your plate. Uh, let's start with asking you about what you prefer more. What do you like more, teaching and working with children or teaching and working with adults?
1: <laughs> yeah, that's a it's a good question. It's something I've been thinking about more lately. <sighs> My, my honest answer right now is probably teachers only because this is my, I think, 14th year in education. And so I remember what it was like in year one and two and even beyond that to struggle pretty significantly and to be really hungry to learn the tools and the mindsets and everything that would help me to be far more effective than I was. And so uh, even now, there's still a big part of me that really kind of resonates with teachers and, and wants to kind of play that role that that I so yearned for when I was starting, uh, starting out on my path. And so I do find it really satisfying to work with new teachers in that way. And also just uh, as I'm potentially considering a step back out of the classroom and into leadership in some form, just thinking about how can I use my skill set to have the biggest impact possible. And, you know, I teach about a hundred kids now, but naturally, if I were to coach and develop a lot of teachers, you know, you can magnify that impact a lot.
0: Yeah. How important is the work of an instructional coach, in your opinion? Teachers seem to have mixed opinions about this. Maybe it just depends on the type of coach that they have had the experience of working with. In my personal experience, in my first couple of years, my coach was instrumental in my development. I feel like I learned everything from uh, my instructional coach. But there are some people for whom it's just another meeting on the calendar and time away from the real work, quote unquote, of, you know, planning and grading and all of that. So in your opinion, what is the role of an instructional coach and how important is it?
1: Yeah, I think, I think it's a really important question. Um, And I agree that uh, number one, uh, part of it is about the relationship between the coach and the teacher. Um, But even before that, I think the, kind of prerequisite is like, what? what is the structure at a school for what coaching and development looks like? So I have been fortunate both in the school that I'm at now and uh, my previous school to have uh, a pretty robust coaching and professional development structure. So what that looks like is having a coach observing you typically once a week or maybe once every two weeks And then with with a similar cadence of having a a debrief co-planning meeting once a week or every two weeks. And so I think that for some people would seem really different uh, if you're in potentially a a traditional setting where, uh, you know, somebody in your classroom is more of a kind of evaluation mode and maybe with a a, less of a frequency. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think on the one hand, people could say, you know, well, if you're spending that much time, you know, does that detract from time spent, you know, planning or grading or that kind of thing? But I I would argue the opposite, because with the teachers that I work with and when I'm the teacher in, you know, on the other side of the table, I think with that frequency, number one, you have just a much tighter relationship with that person. You can you can bring there's more trust. Um, I think it has to do with, like, how you structure, like, what you're looking for. You know, when I'm in the classroom, it's not a gotcha thing. There should really be no surprises because we've co-identified certain uh, areas that a teacher is looking to grow and develop in, and then having a meeting that is hopefully really warm and supportive and, and helping teachers move toward greater sense of mastery. So all of that is to say, I actually think it can be an incredibly Powerful part of a school program when it comes to helping teachers be better for kids, but also to be more fulfilled, you know, as professionals themselves.
0: Thank you for sharing that. I also was wondering, as you were speaking, what about the more experienced teachers? Then, if the model that you're describing sounds like it has the potential of being very effective and highly valuable, but if more experienced teachers, let's say teachers in their seventh, eighth, ninth, 10th year, mm-hmm. um, do you think they also should receive this kind of uh, support? How do you suggest what should be the model of development for those teachers who are in that stage?
1: Yeah, I, so like I said, I, I'm in my, I think, 14th year of education. I sometimes lose count. Um, I am still being coached by the um, principal at my school with the same meeting frequency as the uh, newer teachers that I coach. Wow. And I would argue that it, it is still uh, impactful. I think it is important to recognize that what that coaching looks like, be it allowed to be different. So when I'm working with a new teacher, um, you know, a lot of times if you're a first year, or second year teacher, you know, we're working on different fundamentals of classroom practice of, you know, your teacher radar of your how you're supporting all students to be successful in their academic tasks. Um, And it can be uh, a little bit more direct for me as a coach, just helping teachers to see gaps and opportunities for growth, and to to guide them pretty directly toward that. Uh, Whereas I think if you're working with more experienced teachers, that that should be more of a collaborative conversation and it can look different ways. So even in, in the coaching that I'm receiving now, my principal asked me to identify elements of my practice that I am personally interested in developing, even if I'm at a proficient point with it. So there is that shift in the dynamic. I think there's other aspects that are important to consider too. One is as you develop more, uh, your coaching could be around your other responsibilities or leadership roles, right? So my principle is helping grow me as a coach, helping grow me as a professional development facilitator. Um, but also beyond that, I think I actually think it's really important um, just for the kind of like uh, well-being and mental health of teachers that you have one kind of point person and touch point with a recurring frequency just so that uh, it's a space in which different uh, challenges and concerns can come up without just sort of festering or going unaddressed, you know, in different pockets around the school. I think just by having having a structure where everybody has a coach and is regularly working with them just helps create a a healthier environment holistically.
0: That's very interesting because in a lot of places and a lot of teachers that I've spoken to, what sounds like happens as far as individualized professional development is concerned, such as uh, individual coaching, is that after a certain number of years, especially in places where you can earn a tenure and where coaching observations and teacher evaluations kind of go hand in hand there, uh, the number of observations and professional development kind of interactions between supervisors and teachers decrease over the years. So, for example, where I teach And as a tenure teacher, my required number of observations is one a year. So as a school leader, this doesn't happen in my particular school, but I do think in some places, school leaders may only prioritize people for whom they have to do a certain number. And it sounds like the model that you're describing is completely different than that, but then if you're limited on resources and you are a school leader, you know, you have to decide who to give more support to and you don't have an instructional coach and you don't have the money to hire one or enough to be able to service everybody. Do you have any ideas as to what, you know, might be done in that case to support teachers?
1: Yeah. So I think you bring up a few different points that I want to address. Um, one of those I agree is uh, there's, there shouldn't be a one-size-fits-all approach And so I think I need to add a little nuance to how I was describing it. So while I will still often meet with my principal for our coaching for um, 30 minutes each week, the frequency with which she observes my classroom is far less than the frequency with which we are observing our newer teachers. Mm. Um, So the teacher that I'm working with currently, I'm in his classroom once a week my principal is probably in my classroom once a month, if that. Um, So Mm -hmm. I think you're absolutely right that if you have uh, finite resources and time that you want to kind of triage that and and put it where it's going to be most impactful. Um, uh, A second point in terms of like how to help grow a team in light of those finite resources, I think part of it is to do kind of what my school is doing with me right now. Like I'm a classroom teacher officially, um, but I have the desire to grow as an instructional leader. And so I advocated for the opportunity to be an instructional coach on the side. And so I I actually think that, and this goes back to a point from earlier, which is just like, how do you grow uh, more experienced teachers? And Part of that, I think, is just acknowledging that like nobody figures it out, puts their feet up, and calls it a day. I actually have mm-hmm. have issues with people who feel like they hit a point and whether that's you know tenure or otherwise, and just stagnate and say, "Yep, figured it out. That's it." I have I have disagreements with that. Mm-hmm. Um, but another way to think about it is if you have more experienced staff that you can leverage their skill set and their willingness to grow by bringing them into Leadership, whether that's formally or informally, and potentially sharing the uh, instructional coaching duties. Uh, A third point that's sort of the bigger context with all of this is I think it's important for me to name. I currently work at a charter school. My previous context was also charter. And so I know that that can be a, a loaded term for some, but I recognize that if you are in a traditional district, that has a teacher's union. Uh, I am not part of a union, our school uh, is non-union, and I'm perfectly happy with that. I'm I'm happy to uh, talk (laughs) about that if, if that's interesting. But by virtue of that, and by being smaller, we are able, as a school and as a leadership team, to have more autonomy in crafting what teacher development looks like, what PD looks like. And I would argue that that's extremely beneficial, both for the frequency of contact, but also It's just the dynamic between uh, an instructional leader and a coachee. So implicit in your conversation, what some teachers might experience is, oh, well, I have this formal, this person only sees me X number of times a year. And if that number is very, very low, then it can feel more adversarial between teachers and leadership. Mm -hmm. Uh, It can feel more of a valuation as opposed to, a kind of like formative way of helping to t- teachers to grow. So all that's to say, I, I think that the the backdrop of the type of school you run, whether there's a union in place, what the, what the uh, kind of boundaries are for what coaching and PD and that kind of thing can look like, that obviously like completely shapes all this other minutia and the dynamics and everything.
0: Yeah, you mentioned something about mindsets earlier too. And I wanted to go deeper with, with that. What do you think are the mindsets of, or I guess the recommended mindsets of of a teacher that you try to inculcate and foster? And second, was part B of that question. Do you think there are certain mindsets that just are not compatible to teaching and can't be changed or developed if a person arrives with into the classroom with those mindsets?
1: Uh, I love this question. Uh, My answer to B is yes. I I think there are some mindsets that are fundamentally incompatible with what I would consider effective teaching. I also think it's, it's important to recognize like as a profession, I think we need to be able to help grow teachers that come in with all different kinds of mindsets, all different kinds of prior skill sets, right? Like we got a lot of kids in our country that have to be educated. Um, And so we have to have the capacity to like help people grow in different ways. But what kind of mindset is needed? Like number one, you have to believe that all students are capable of achieving and achieving at a high level. I think that's very important. I think one of, Even as our American education system has many challenges, something that's been important in the last 10 or 20 years is a more direct acknowledgement of all the achievement gaps, all the institutional racism and and problems that come with really inequitable education. Mm -hmm. And so uh, if you are in the classroom and you are being coached and you have a persistent mindset that students X, Y, and Z are just bad or are doomed or whatever, uh, which often correlates to certain uh, demographic groups, I think that's fundamentally unacceptable and you shouldn't be a teacher. Now that being said, we are all human and we all come in with inherent biases and I think there's a a process by which people learn to uh, address those things and grow as educators. But I do think that part of being allowed to be in the classroom, like we are there for kids. They're not there for us. We are there to serve them and it is our responsibility to approach that in a way that, that honors and respects all all learners.
0: That's amazing. Let's say I'm one of the newer teachers you're coaching and I come to you in one of our regularly scheduled meetings and I say, you know, Jonathan is I am just done. I can't. I don't I don't know what to do. Just I'm sick of getting cursed out. I go a mile for this kid and like I don't think there's anything I could do anymore. Now I'm a newer teacher, obviously, and I'm frustrated in the state of the moment. How do you get this kind of a teacher, this this person who's going through this tough kind of a emotional experience right now? How do you get them out of it? And what's your message to them?
1: I think a couple things. One is first just acknowledging the difficulty of it. You don't want to pretend like they're, you know, wrong or misconstruing. Like mm-hmm. teachers do experience really difficult experiences like that. Uh, I would then share possibly you know, a story or two of my own of having butted heads with students and, and been really stressed, and then how I found my way through it. And then I would move to, to problem solving and to try to dig into the student with that teacher. And maybe that student becomes part of their instructional focus for the next couple of weeks in trying to understand um, what are the different triggers that have led to certain behaviors what are some of the underlying needs that are not being met, uh, whether that student has an IEP or not. Um, And just sticking with that student and and helping guide the teacher to both um, build a relationship with them, to to see them as a fully complex human, you know, for for the good and the bad Mm -hmm. and to experience the success that can come with Um, effectively troubleshooting and starting to see progress, because uh, I know that that is something that was impactful for me when I was starting out. Uh, I helped to, I was on the founding team of uh, a charter middle school in New York city, and it was tremendously difficult. Uh, And I was the student or I was the teacher, you know, possibly saying these things and having these challenges, but what allowed me to stay in the classroom and get past that is having a loving coach that guided me through that like said, no, you're not giving up on this student, but here's how we can move forward and showed me that success was possible. That could help me shift my mindset in a a bigger picture way when it came to working with other students beyond that.
0: Thank you for saying that to me. That's one of the most valuable things about having a coach, because in those moments of darkness and these extreme challenges where you feel like you've done enough or you haven't seen the result you're expecting because you've been working so hard toward a certain thing, the coach can really help you see all of the different ways in which you do make a difference and all the different ways where you can or approaches you can take to make a small gain going forward and I think that's really important a lot of teachers don't get to do that now let's switch gear to your expertise as a history teacher as well how did that happen how do you how do you become a history teacher what was your journey like coming into the classroom
1: yeah so I think for a lot of history teachers that was just a a natural area of interest when I was a student myself Uh, actually for me it was even more like uh, probably geography so um, my first uh, job out of college. I taught ESL in South Korea for three years. And part of what led me to that was the desire to live abroad, to learn more about other cultures. And you know, I think part of that's just how I'm wired with a, a natural curiosity to uh, explore cultures and that kind of thing. And so I, I've told other history teachers, that's my dirty secret is uh, social studies teachers are, you know, often, uh, we have different subjects we can teach right in our credential to, um, you know, geography, economics, history. I'm now teaching government. My dirty secret is, uh, history is actually not my favorite. Uh, my current (laughs) role in teaching AP us government, uh, is actually my dream position. I, I absolutely love it. Um, and part of that is because I think it's obviously, uh, more tangible for kids to see the impacts and how understanding something new that they learned last week then shows up in, you know, what is happening in Washington, DC today. But yeah, I I think it's a subject matter that's fundamentally interesting, and that I think can also be a gateway for people to care about, you know, literacy and just other aspects of academics.
0: I want to ask you about curriculum then, because history teachers, it's kind of a I feel like a misnomer. I don't know, maybe I like the social studies or a more specific terminology, better like government, you know, because history is happening, right? So at any given moment, there there are things happening in the world that are worth talking about. How do you think the curriculum for a class uh, such as yours or a more broad content areas such as i guess they would call social studies how should the the curriculum be developed should there be a mapped out list of topics to be taught in certain years or in your view there should be moments where a lot of real world application happens and current events are also talked about how do you manage or marry the two if that's your recommendation Uh, but overall how does how does a history teacher choose and create our her, her curriculum
1: yeah I, I love this question and uh, I am a total geek for curriculum and have thought a lot about this uh, first thing I think is worth uh, identifying for your listeners for anybody who's not a social studies teacher is that compared to other uh, subject areas like uh, math or reading or even sciences you um, the frameworks that we receive are not always as specifically developed i think this actually varies a lot from state to state um, but there was something the national council for the social studies developed a few years ago called the c3 framework um mm-hmm. they kind of they kind of broadly Uh, outlines different skills and yeah it's it's pretty broad and not down to the prescriptive like you need to teach about this specific battle or that kind of thing. So my kind of personal preference and where I've seen this work well is I do think especially if you're a newer teacher you need a blueprint for what is uh, meaningful for students to learn. For me uh, I'm increasingly focused honestly more on, on skill development even more than than content because I think if you are a proficient reader, if you are able to identify point of view in a text, and so on, and you have some content knowledge to back that up, uh, you are then a capable learner to go and then equip yourself with further content. But yeah, I think to 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 kind of tie all that together, I I, I think the my ideal vision of a, a social studies curriculum that would exist at a, a district network or school level would have kind of medium-level specificity, possibly outlining units, maybe thematic, uh, co- cross-referencing that with different uh, cognitive skills that would be addressed in that, literacy skills, and then leave a, a little bit of uh, teacher autonomy to bring in different perspectives. One, one kind of example for this, so a couple years ago when I was teaching uh, 10th grade modern world history, uh, we had a project that was all Focused on genocide, and so part of that was some direct instruction and learning about the Holocaust and Armenian genocide to just develop a framework of uh, what constitutes genocide you know how is it uh, defined and then it was a more open kind of research project where students were then able to choose other genocides like in Rwanda or Cambodia, or even more ambiguous situations like what was happening in Syria and try to you know determine if it uh, met the definition of genocide or not. But then along the way, um, I, I think that's a, an important part of curriculum is to get to your point about uh, identity and race and things like this, that I think if you have projects that have an element of choice like that, that that can often give students the opportunity to gravitate towards different options or, or topic matters that allows for some of their own Uh, identity exploration, or to understand certain cultures that sort of give voice to different perspectives in the social studies classroom that are not just the traditional white male narratives.
0: Do you think the role of a history teacher or social studies teacher is different now than it was maybe 30 years ago?
1: Oh, yeah, for sure. I even think about uh, one of my favorite classes in high school was my AP US history teacher or history class partly because the teacher was wonderful, um, but it was very much, and I, I think your listeners, probably anybody over the age of 30, if I'm going to date myself, might have something uh, similar to say, that it was a, a more traditional, uh, memorize this, you know, list of vocab terms, these names, dates, and places, you know, write some some essays along the way. And so I think nowadays with the important inclusion of uh, more diverse perspectives and and coverage of different uh, historical events or or areas of the world that weren't traditionally addressed um, is a big shift and also to go back to kind of my own pet interest I think the more intentional addressing of cognitive skills like so part of that's literacy right and and um, a part of that is also I'm trying to think our our school has a pretty robust cog skill framework and so my students like while they are learning about, right now we're in a project on Congress. They're also giving oral presentations. They're also uh, analyzing a source validity for different websites that they are finding. They're also developing their own graphs and charts and that kind of thing. So I I do think it's really important that students leave us, all classrooms, but um, in my context, the social studies classroom, with transferable skills as opposed to, uh, you know, list of trivia points that would do you well if you're watching Jeopardy at home but aren't necessarily transferring over and being useful to you in a different academic or real-world context.
0: I want to hear more about the this thing you mentioned regarding literacy just now. The idea was that everybody's a reading teacher. It's a broad statement that is often talked about and I think with the different legislation that have kind of mandated student you know, growth in reading and math had made this idea come into being that everybody should be a teacher of reading and literacy. So how do you develop as a history teacher, the skills and the pedagogical practices to be a reading teacher?
1: I think this goes back to what we're previously discussing around like, what is your school doing around coaching and professional development? Because uh, i 've been fortunate, especially when I was teaching middle school in at my previous school, to have a ton of professional development around really specific literacy strategies, helping students to chunk the text, annotation strategies, word walls like I feel like i 'm actually far more well versed in um, different literacy strategies than probably all of the other history teachers at my high school currently. So I I think part of that was Mm. there's an even more intentional focus properly in uh, literacy and uh, remediating different literacy gaps at the middle school. But I think all that's to say I've heard so many people have different opinions about the like everybody's a reading teacher because like there have been a lot of people have said and I probably have said at different times like no I'm not. Uh, (laughs) And I think how you respond to that statement, I think is a reflection of how you have been trained and what, Mm -hmm. uh, what the message you're getting from your leadership, how you might be being evaluated. Right. So I have been at schools where the different both state testing scores, but also even like ELA interim assessments that those were uh, data points that were even being brought to me and saying like, okay, what, how are you going to help move the needle on this? Um, and those mm-hmm. kind of conversations, those kind of structures make it so like, oh, yeah, I, I, I really am a reading teacher. Whereas I think for a lot of history teachers, like if you don't have a ton of PB and you are coming into this as a secondary teacher, especially at the high school level, um, because you love your specific content area, mm-hmm. then I think it's – you know, completely dependent on what your personal beliefs are or what kind of training you got back in college as to whether or not you actually include that or you say, well, I just like learning the content and teach it more as a content class. I think that even today, there's probably tremendous variation, variability in what that looks like in different schools.
0: Does the school ever stop providing professional development to teachers. Do you ever envision such a such a place that our schools would ever get to? I'm asking you this is because we do have institutions of higher education and in a lot of states in our country, teachers have to have and earn a master's degree before they enter into classroom. I know there's still some places that only require a bachelors, but there's a lot more places now that require a master's degree. So why aren't teachers ready on day one to teach? Why do schools have to keep providing this robust PD program? Have people like you as coaches, with working with several different teachers, and giving the one-on-one support in addition, and providing the whole staff professional development training sessions every week, once a week. Why all of this? Why doesn't it just work that you finish, you get your degree and you start teaching and, you know, once in a while you get a new training of something new, something refreshing, but, you know, you're, you're doing what you're supposed to do.
1: Yeah. Um, I I would say it is impossible to be a day one teacher and to be very good. Period. <laughs> I, I don't think that's possible. Yeah. You could you could be the, the smartest person in the world with the with the best mindset. You are going to be bad your first year. And I, I, I think that's actually something that people really grapple with because there are a lot of people who become teachers who were really high performing students themselves and maybe never experienced failure. Mm-hmm. You are going to fail. You are going to suck your first year, and that's that's okay. That's normal. Be- because Being a good teacher is such, it it involves so many different skills that you have to develop as you learn them, right? Mm -hmm. So like the the most obvious thing is classroom management. You don't sit in, you know, a plush room full of a bunch of other 20 year olds and talk abstractly about how you're going to manage some little adolescents and go in and actually find that you're effective at it. You will Mm -hmm. not be. It is very difficult. It is something that you have to experience, reflect on, have somebody uh, give you some pointers in a kind of real time or just like recent reaction kind of way, and then go back in and do it again. And so I, I don't know what the, the perfect metaphor is, uh, if you can connect that to, you know, sports or, you know, medicine, you know, like, nobody becomes like, you know, a heart surgeon, like you don't step in and do that on day one. But as teachers, like, we have to be masters of our content as you have to be uh, really proficient in uh, as kind of like a social worker, right? Uh, You have to be able to understand the social emotional needs of a diverse student population. You have to, you know, be proficient in special education law uh, and make sure that you're, you're doing right by these kids and bringing in the appropriate learning supports. You probably are coming in with some mindset gaps that are potentially racist and and other things. I just, there's so many uh, aspects of teaching that just take time and experience to develop. And so I I feel like I went to some pretty good colleges. I had a year long student teaching uh, experience uh, at my undergrad institution and went to a supposedly top ranked uh, uh, institution for my master's and it was fine. Number one, I think most organizations uh, teach too theoretically. Like I was never taught, here's how to make a really good lesson plan. I mm-hmm. was never shown like, here are, here's how to circulate around a room and give positive narration to help students urgently work at completing a complex task in a certain amount of time. Mm-hmm. These are like very concrete sub that I think are important. I think there are some preparatory programs That uh, are trying to do that, but I don't know of any organization that hits the sweet spot between theory and practice, number one. And even if they did, you're not gonna be totally ready day one. You just aren't. Mm -hmm. Teaching is complex, it's a little art, it's a lot of science, and it takes a long time to learn to do well.
0: Thank you. What do you then think are some of the frustrations you've experienced as a teacher? And as an instructional leader over the years, what gets in the way of the work and what are some obstacles that teachers have to contend with and overcome that you just wish weren't there?
1: Mm. It's tricky because some of the obstacles are going to be there. Like I'm somebody who feels emotionally connected to my students. And so the inverse of that is If I have a really negative student interaction or interaction with a parent, which is inevitable just because we're humans, like Mm -hmm. that's really hard. And that actually weighs on me pretty significantly. And that's just like that's not going to go away. Right. But I do think it is important to consider how if we are investing deeply in teachers, as I'm suggesting needs to happen, how do we teach? teachers in the classroom longer. I do think that it's important to consider a couple things. One is just, I think people's days are really, really overburdened. And I think we need to be really intentional with how teachers are mandated to spend their time. So not wasting time in meetings that are not necessarily uh, impactful, potentially uh, relieving teachers of non-instructional duties that take away from their core work, uh, I think we should have way more paraprofessionals in our schools and tutors and stuff to help just alleviate the the challenges of running large classrooms and reaching all students to be effective in the way that you want. So yeah, I, I, I like I don't think we're ever going to get to a point where teaching is easy because we live in a uh, society where there's a lot of poverty, there's there's a lot of racism, and we're trying to do ambitious things with kids to get them ready for a 21st century kind of world. And that's just complicated. But I do think there needs to be more work done to minimize the non-essential aspects of the, a teacher's job.
0: Do you think our education system is broken and not uh, effective at all? That Sometimes the data comes up and we're not Near the top, or not in the top ten in reading and math, and that can make some people feel like, "Wow, why are we so far behind?" Why are? And some people, frankly, just think our schools suck. So, what what's your opinion on that? I
1: think that it is pretty impossible to say American schools are X. We have so many different types of schools and settings and socioeconomic areas. And so if, you know, to kind of point out the obvious, uh, you know, as a government teacher here, we, our country has a a federalism structures, schools are run by states. I actually wish that we had more of a national curriculum. I think there are people who resist that notion. But if you look at some of the highest performing countries in the world, like uh, Finland, Singapore, other places, Mm -hmm. um, number one, they have national curriculums that have been really carefully developed and are really smart. And so you have teachers who are not constantly trying to reinvent the wheel and find their own resources and plan everything from scratch. But also the given our demographics, like there is a tremendous part of our country that grows up in poverty. I myself am from Mm -hmm. a working class background and went to some really mediocre schools. And so in a sense, like we are ineffective as a country in educating our neediest 20 or 30 percent of students. That being said, every year uh, American high schools send hundreds of thousands of kids to colleges and a lot of them do pretty well, right? Mm-hmm. And I think there are pockets not only in richer districts, but just pockets of innovation that just have really smart educators doing innovative things. I, I think my my current school, I, I feel proud, is one of those examples but that gets lost in this overgeneralization that American schools are X, right? Like we're not one system. We're like, you know, 50 or a thousand systems. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that that's what fundamentally makes it hard to improve things because like, you know, the federal department of education isn't really empowered to do much than issue grants and hope that uh, state systems and districts uh, are effective and responsive enough to do things. But then I think there's all kinds of obstacles with, mindsets and bureaucracies and unions and other things that get in the way.
0: Yeah. So if you could wave a magic wand and do some things to improve and strengthen our education system for all, uh, what would you do?
1: I think one thing people do talk about is a uh, teacher salary. And I think raising that by itself isn't sufficient, but I, I do think that the argument that If, like in South Korea and some other places, if the role of the teacher was higher social status and paid better, I do think there is something to the argument that you would get people to become teachers who are very smart and talented. I will often be a contrarian, and I will openly say I've met lots of teachers who aren't very good who shouldn't be teachers. Mm -hmm. And I I think they're just, it's just a a pathway to a job for some people. There's also many thousands of wonderful teachers who I would happily, you know, have teach my daughter. Um, But I do think Mm -hmm. that part of it has to do with developing a really strong educator pipeline. I think part of that too goes back to my point that colleges of ed, I think, in my experience, are far too theoretical and not pragmatic enough. Uh, I was fortunate to be part of a program where I had. Uh, a year-long student teaching internship, and then once a week I went back and reflected as part of a a graduate program class, Uh, I think you have to have kind of a longer handoff period between uh, college and being a a classroom practice. Mm -hmm. Um, I think you do ideally need better student-to-teacher ratios in the classroom, but I think fundamentally we have to give teachers what they need to help students and help students in a 21st century way right so uh the school that i'm at now you know we're a, a one-to-one chromebook context We're i think doing some innovative uh work around personalized learning and and helping students get ready for 21st century that is not just learn some information and have an industrial era kind of job where you're where you're a cog in the machine so mm-hmm. i think those are a few of the pieces
0: Thank you. To wrap us up, what you just said made me think about a, a guy named Neil Postman. You may have heard of him. Uh, he wrote uh, many books. One of them was called The End of Education. And the title really has double meaning, I guess. But the the meaning I wanted to ask you about is he, he asks one of the questions for the book, the central questions is, what is the end of education? What is the end goal of education? So in your view, what is the end of education? Is it college? Is it college for everybody? Is it a job? Is it civically engaged people? What's your answer to that question?
1: I would answer that effective education um, helps to help students to realize their full potential and develop their passions and interests in a way that opens the doors that are necessary to have a fulfilled life. I do think that whether or not all students attend a four-year university, they should have been prepared that that is an option for them. Mm-hmm. So if you choose to go to a trade school or whatever, that's, that's great, no problem. Uh, my, my dad was a janitor. Uh, I'm a first-generation college student myself, so... I don't, I don't think that saying 100% of students are gonna to go to college is realistic or necessary, but I do think that it should, students should be, be equipped with the academic skills to be successful in college should they choose to do so. But more that along the way that they helped to figure out who they were, how to be a happy, well-rounded person in the world, Uh, and what some of their passions and talents are that are gonna help them to have a fulfilled life.
0: I feel that was a beautiful message. Thank you for sharing that. And on that note, we could wrap up the interview. I, once again, am so grateful for your time. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. And that's all for today's episode, folks. Thank you for tuning in. Turn and Talk Podcast is your one-stop shop for learning about what is actually happening in schools today directly from the people who are working in today's schools. The support for this podcast comes from listeners like yourself, people who are interested in the present and the future of education. So feel free to head on over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash Podcast. We invite you to also follow us on Instagram at Turn & Talk Podcast. If you haven't subscribed yet, please go ahead and do that too so that all future episodes are available to you upon release and downloaded immediately to your device. If you have questions, thought, feedback, or if you work in a school and would like to take the mic back, please email us at turnandtalkpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for tuning in. This is your host, Jay McSutz, signing out. Peace.